0: Welcome everyone, my guest today is Matt Van Fossen, the CEO of Absolute Home Mortgage in Fairfield, New Jersey, and a member of the Community Home Lenders Association to talk about what the commission lawsuits could mean for loan officers. First, here's a word from our sponsor. This is Sarah Wheeler, Editor-in-Chief at HousingWire with Melinda Wilner, Chief Operating Officer at UWM. Melinda, what types of products and enhancements has UWM rolled out this year to help set brokers up for success?
1: it's been a big year for us of rolling out product updates and some enhancements to our tools. Um, our whole goal always is to make the broker succeed in whatever cycle is around. So we uh, we do everything we can to focus on the broker experience and really importantly focus on the borrower experience. So A few of the things we've done this year, um, Safe Check Complete uh, has been a, a recent rollout for us. Our 1% down program has been an absolute hit to really help in that affordable space and to help people get into homes who couldn't otherwise do so. Uh, we've had some great product expansions
2: with our uh, bank statement program, as well as our jumbo program to allow more flexibility and uh, to fit more borrowers into there. So it's really been a great year. We've done a lot of great things that we're really happy about, really proud of.
0: A lot of robust products and listeners you can find out more at uwm.com. Matt, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks, Sarah. Pleasure to be back.
0: Happy to have you and talking about uh, a really important issue to our audience, which is the Sitzer-Burnett lawsuit that's going on right now in uh, Kansas City, Missouri, and will have a potentially really big impact on both real estate and mortgage. So that's what I want to ask you about first is like, how is the mortgage sector going to be impacted by this decision?
1: Yeah, so it's interesting, right? Uh even you know outside of the case, even without the the ruling of the case, we're already starting to see states make adjustments, you know, most recently in New York just passed a ruling that regardless of the outcome of the case on January 1st, uh we're going to see a lot of the confines that are within the case actually be implemented inside of the state. So, you know, when we go look at this case and we look at the the core of the case, what is actually being said here? Uh, you know, when we think about it, what really is come down to is a contract issue, right? The, the case is saying that sellers should be breaking the traditional real estate model and they should have consumer choice when it comes to a listing agreement of whether they are willing to pay the buyer's agent commission representation or not. And there is trailing effects down to the mortgage companies and loan officers. And I like to look at it as a waterfall right? Uh, first, I'd like to explore what's the most likely and best outcome. Most likely and best outcome is it's a contract change uh, and it's business as usual, meaning that the, con- the listening agreement will change. It'll now have two columns, kind of like it does now, um, but there will be clear definitions of seller compensation and buyer agent compensation, and the seller will have choice. Seller will have choice to pick from 1% to 3%, let's say, for a listing agent and from 0 to 3% for a buyer agent. If that does happen, what we hope for is that sellers will continue to see values in buyer agents, meaning that there's an argument to be made that buyer agents, especially in competitive seller markets, have a lot of value. They fiercely negotiate for their buyers. Um, and they bring a lot of buyers to the table. And when a listing agent is listing a property and a seller says, well, why would I want to pay a buyer agent commission? They would state to the sellers, well, buyer agents bring more buyers to the table, makes your, your property more competitive and hopefully brings enough buyers to the table that you wind up with you know any type of uh price competition, meaning bidding wars, stuff like that. And the one to 3% they may pay a buyer agent will actually have a higher likelihood of selling the house for more value. That's the best possible outcome. But what happens if the outcome goes the other way and consumers pivot We talk a lot about a savvy seller, Sarah. What does a savvy seller mean? Well, it means that a seller that is educated and looks in, is analyzing the market and says, well, you know, when I'm thinking about selling my house and I'm thinking about the relationship with a listing agent, maybe I don't want to offer a buyer agent commission. Maybe what I'm looking for is a 3% listing. I don't need my house marketed. I don't need postcards, right? I don't need magazine ads. Uh, What I'm looking for is a listing agent to come in, take pictures of my house, do a listing description, put it on the MLS, put it on the multiple listing, and then field offers directly from buyers. If that's the way consumers may pivot, and they may be looking at how to work with listing agents a little bit different, then we have some trailing risk uh, that definitely waterfalls down to mortgage companies. Because let's think about this. Most top producing loan officers that are referral based, especially with the exit of refinances in recent years, because of the way rates are sitting, most successful loan officers are purchase based referral loan officers. Where do they get their business from? They get their business from buyer agents. And if buyer agents become either less prevalent or the construct of a buyer agent relationship with a buyer uh, is where they have to negotiate those commissions up front to work with one of those buyers. Well, now there's actually trailing risk for loan officers. So let's, you know, if you want, if you have any questions so far, we can stop and fill any questions. If not, we can kind of go down this waterfall and see how it will affect loan officers based on different outcomes of consumers.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's super um, interesting and important to our audience. We did a panel on this at Housing Wire Annual a few weeks ago, and we did that because we knew that the um, the real estate folks were paying super close attention, but that the mortgage folks maybe didn't even know about it or definitely didn't understand how this was going to affect them. So this is absolutely what I want to get into here. So, so let's get down into that waterfall. What's, what's the first order?
1: okay so to be clear this is not what I believe right we I think it's important I've advocated for loan officers and realtors my entire career but I think it's important for us as an industry to explore variable outcomes and say well if cause and effect if this happens let's be on guard that this also may happen so let's operate under an assumption in this conversation let's operate under the assumption that uh, the contract changes right that sellers will be less prone to offer buyer agent commissions uh, inside of the listing contract. And what are the trailing effects if that happens where consumer sellers don't want to offer the buyer agent commission? Well, let's look at the real estate agents first, the buyer agents. One trailing effect would be buyer agents have to now show value to buyers and have to be willing to have buyers pay an upfront fee, okay, Uh, or a fee at closing. So if that happens, when you look at the average buyer agent commission, usually it's from two to three percent in the current listing contract. Well, I believe that there's a lot of value. I talk to my business partner Joe a lot about this a lot, that the value of a buyer's agent in a seller's market is that they're great negotiators, they have relationships with listing agents, and they can get your offer put in front of the listing agent and pushed to the top. But what happens when consumers who do see value, yeah, they might be willing on a $500,000 house maybe to, to pay five or maybe $10,000. I'm not sure if you'll be able to get them up to the full 3% of $15,000. But what I think about is what happens with first-time buyers? What happens with low to moderate income buyers? What happens with underserved buyers? They may see immense value in buyer agents, but they may also not have the ability to pay these buyer agents out of pocket. If we go look at a $250,000 property, for example, and an FHA first-time buyer, uh, you know, that is putting 3.5% down. Right now, with a mixture of seller concessions and some strategic financing, an originator can usually get a buyer into that house for under $20,000. Now, if you added a 3% fee to, that, to the front of that, it adds another $7,500 to the transaction. That really changes the dynamic and affordability and path of entry. So what concerns me about that is what happens with the real estate buyer agents. Some will be able to get the upfront fee. Others will not. And you may see some infighting in the real estate community as well because of price competition. We see this with loan officers and mortgage companies all the time. Rate wars, right? Everybody is trying to win an account to get those future referrals and they'll undercut each other's rates. Well, the same thing may happen with real estate agents, where you have new agents and new buyer agents coming into the market. They need to get a foothold for their business, and they're willing to do buyer representation for less. They may be able to be willing to do it for $1,500 or $2,000, or other agents might, uh, might be charging $5,000 or, or, or plus. No matter what, it looks like buyer agents will have to work for less. And this is where there starts becoming trailing risk for loan officers. And there's a couple of different outcomes. One, let's say buyer agents um, just kind of get knocked out, meaning that the the listing agent has 0% commission and they can't actually get um, a foothold in charging a customer. The, The consumers don't like that. Well, where there's a risk for loan officers is that loan officers now need a way to forge relationships with listing agents which has been very difficult in the past. Usually if you go to a networking event as a loan officer and you try to network with a listing agent, they go, whoa, I'm a listing agent. You can't get anything out of me, right? Go, go deal with buyer agents. We, we've all heard that as, as loan officers. And other than helping sponsor open houses and hopefully getting some, some buyers out of agents that do a dual representation, it's very hard for loan officers to forge relationships with listing agents. And we have some solutions on the technology front we can talk about a little bit later that's gonna help originators do that. But on the buyer agent side, what happens if an agent that's used to making 3% now can only get maybe 1%? Maybe on a half a million dollar house, they're used to getting 15,000, Now they can only get $5,000 or even $2,500 out of the buyer? Well, they may start looking at other avenues to supplement that income. And one avenue that concerns me is there's something that happened a year ago, Sarah, and we talked about this on our last call. It was the removal of the FHA proxy, the dual compensation proxy. Right. When FHA a year ago lifted that proxy and sent out that mortgagee letter that said, hey, a real estate agent on an FHA loan can get paid with proper representation, proper disclosure on both sides of the deal. They can get be the loan officer and be the realtor on the transaction if they're duly licensed and and so on with proper compliance protocols. Well, that wound up kind of being a nothing burger. We thought that was really going to be disruptive. But what we learned over the past year is, wow, surprise. Loan officers like being loan officers and real estate agents like being real estate agents. And they kind of set, saw value in each other and it wound up not being too disruptive. I'm sure some realtors in the industry got their license and maybe tried to do it, but it wasn't this earth shattering industry change that we thought it may be. But now that may come back around. Think about it. A buyer's agent's backs in the corner. They're, they have limited compensation on the, on the same file for doing the same work. Well, what you could see is maybe a segue of buyer agents getting MLO licenses and starting to pair with lenders as W-2 employees and become a agent loan officer hybrid to kind of fill in the gap. Now, a loan officer still has a competitive advantage though, Sarah, so don't get too concerned. Why? Because loan origination is a highly technical field. I always said some of the best loan officers are the ones that, lost, uh, that had a bunch of deals fall apart because they know what mistakes not to make in the future. So there will be a learning curve if agents decide to, do, uh, to uh, start moving into the origination space for what we call dual compensation, right? They, they get paid as the loan officer and the agent with proper disclosure. Now, what you'll see happen then, if that's a possible outcome, is they'll probably pair up with senior loan officers. They'll pair up as a team an our existing loan officer, and you'll see some type of hybrid approach where the buyer's agent that's now a W-2 employee of a mortgage company is taking the application right through point of sale systems or something like that, pulling credit, doing the base structuring, and then handing it off to their senior team leader or senior loan officer that they work with. And there'll be some type of split compensation as long as it's compliant. Now, there's a whole bunch of RESPA angles to that that open up a whole other trail of questions, but that is a possible outcome right, that you can look at is that buyer agents look to leverage the financing side of things. Uh, And in that case, loan officers, you know, should have some level of concern because that might affect their compensation as well.
0: It's interesting when you think about just like, the reason I think a loan officer would be willing to do this is like, how else are they going to get those first time home buyers, which right now, you know, those purchase loans, I mean, are already hard enough to qualify. Right. If they have to come up with extra cash at closing for the buyer agent.
1: Yeah. And there's been a lot of talk of, well, maybe uh, NAR will go and lobby FHFA uh, to be able to finance this buyer agent commission. Right. And uh, I actually think that that's an unnecessary conversation. Let me tell you why. I think that, especially in the case of first time buyers and LMI borrowers, you know, this is where FHFA has their concerns. And I don't think that they would be too keen on. Uh, you know, a ruling that would allow the financing of, you know, that commission over, you know, a 15 or 30 year amortization that would really drive up the financing cost of the loan, but also we have a vehicle to do that now you have seller concessions on conventional loans 3% fha loan it's 6% so you know on a $300,000 house if they wanted to roll in a 3% buyer agent fee in the negotiation increase the price to 309,000 and then do a $9,000 seller concession to credit it back so there's already a vehicle or mechanism that we have now within the guidelines that would allow them to do it now it does it is contingent on if the house will appraise for the additional money and, and other guidelines, but there is a mechanism uh, for the buyer to abstainably finance that fee right now if, if that's a road that they look to go down.
0: Well, you were uh, you were going through the waterfall, so let's go to the next level, which uh, looks like you were about to say something when I interrupted.
1: Yeah, no, no, no interruptions. It's always an open, fluid conversation with you, right? So let's look at one other interesting aspect is listing agents and sellers and buyers. Let's say we wind up in a world where the listing agent winds up fielding more buyer offers directly. Right, uh, called dual agency. This is this is very common, you know, in the real estate industry now. A, a listing agent can rep, can find a buyer, and they can sell their own listing, and they can represent the buyer and seller at the same time. This is a thing that's been debated amongst the real estate community for a long period of time. But let's say they do that, they wind up with a list a three percent listing, no buyer agent comp. The buyer agents aren't showing the property as much, and the listing agent has to go now do direct fee, uh, offers and field direct offers. Well, there's a couple of things that we should be aware of here. We have a really big consumer direct audience in the mortgage space that's always been chomping at the bit to get into mortgages. If the buyer agent is not there, what's a consumer going to do? Because the buyer agent refers usually to the loan originator to go get pre-qualified. So now a buyer in the marketplace sees that the seller has the listing and the listing, they have to go through the listing agent. The listing agent says, well, if you want to submit an offer, You have to be pre-approved. And maybe the listing agent isn't the one referring out the loan officer. So what does a buyer do? They turn to their good old iPhone or Android and they go to Google, right? And they look up, hey, how to get pre-qualified for a mortgage. And now this is where Consumer Direct could step in. And if Consumer Direct Mortgage starts stepping into the purchase space because buyers are looking to the internet to go get pre-approved. That could affect the standard retail loan officer's compensation plan because we know the consumer direct guys, they work for a little bit less money and they work on a volume basis. And that could affect MLO compensation on the referral agent side or referral side of uh, retail purchase. So that's an interesting outcome. So. What we're looking at for loan officers and the advice that we're giving them is start forging relationships with listing agents. Start talking about this. The listing agent may become more prevalent to the loan officer than ever before. And we have some interesting tech that we're rolling out to do that as well.
0: This is Sarah Wheeler, Editor-in-Chief at HousingWire, with Ryan Marshall, CEO and founder of Equity Protect, to talk about a very specific and growing kind of fraud risk. Ryan, who is really at risk of deed fraud?
2: So that's a great question. I think we should first state that the people who are not at risk are people that just recently acquired their properties, people that have loans on their properties, often high loan amounts, high loan to values on their properties. Um, Those are people who I would consider as very low risk and people that should probably not consider our service as a service. So as of November of 2022, we've identified 83 million parcels across the nation, which is roughly 54% of the total parcels in the entire country who we've deemed as vulnerable. Uh, These parcels are specifically ones that don't have mortgages, parcels where they're non owner occupied properties where the mailing address isn't associated with the site address. Um, And they're in some type of vacation area or vacation property area where lawful homeowners wouldn't necessarily know if an appraiser showed up or if somebody just drove by your property and and did a quick appraisal on it.
0: Thanks, Ryan. Listeners, you can find out more information at equityprotect.com. Okay, so let's talk about you know if I'm out there and I'm an uh, I work at an IMB. What what do you suggest? Like we'll know next week. We think the verdict's going to come down next week. Um, when this podcast goes live, it will probably be this week, right? So um, the they've uh, they've tightened up the timeline for this trial. So if it goes that way, where it looks like um, you know the buyers agents are going to be that that role is going to be. Um, significantly changed. If you're at a lender, what do you do to prepare right now?
1: So I think you got to prepare one through knowledge and resources, right? Education, educate yourself on the matter, educate yourself. So you can go and instruct your, your actual buyer agents and pivot your business, right? Um, it will take time to adjust, right? Consumers will not adjust overnight, but they will adjust. I think it's going to be business as norm, as usual. New listing agent or listing agreements will be signed by the listing agent and consumers will kind of go with the normal process and still be offering buyer agent commissions initially. It's really just a contract and disclosure issue moving forward. But over time, so I don't think there's going to be like this light switch where, you know, everything just gets shut out. But over time, I think as consumers get educated and consumers realize that there's more consumer choice options you'll see them looking for cost-saving measures when they go to save sell their house. And all it's going to take is some Instagram reels or TikTok short videos of influencers saying, hey, by the way, did you know when you list your house, you don't have to pay buyer agent commission, right? The buyer of your house can negotiate directly. And if that education cycle of consumers continues, right, what you'll notice is that's where the change will happen. And that's where loan officers need to prepare. So they need to go look at their marketing strategy their networking strategy, their referral strategies, right? And figure out ways to offer more value and forge relationships with listing agents. My team at Absolute, we're doing, having a lot of discussions on it. It's on our weekly management and sales calls and we're building technology. You know, I'm, I'm big in the tech space. I have that company mortgage automation technologies and big point of sale. And we, I think have been one of the only tech providers right now that are actually developing Solutions for this. So we've built an offer management system to to hedge our bet. What is that? That's a tool that we can give to listing agents that they can put in their MLS description. Okay. And it says, if you want to submit an offer directly to me, click this button and a buyer can go submit that offer directly to a listing agent. And then the loan officer that they pair with can help the vetting process. That's a way loan officers can show values to to, to listing agents is if you wind up with 50 consumer direct listing offers uh, offers on your listing, how is a listing agent going to go sort through and figure out which ones are good or not? That's a way that loan officers can figure out a way by leveraging technology to pair directly with a listing agent and say, hey, listen, things are changing. Let's hedge your bet. Let's adopt some new technology into our workflows and let me be a member of your team and actually help you. Let me help you vet your offers. Let me help you vet these pre-approvals. It's not like this hasn't happened in the past. We've definitely seen listing agents pair with loan officers. And in the MLS, it says all pre-approvals need to be vetted by our preferred lender. Right? The same type of construct may be more value because guess what? Only one of those offers is actually going to buy that house. And if the offer, if the house has 25 offers on it, those other 24 pre approval and offer requests are a lot of opportunity for a loan officer. So there may be more opportunity for a savvy loan officer that's strategic here, using the right tech, using the right marketing ploys to go after and working and teaming up with listing agents to have more referral opportunities
0: interesting that this could be a, a great um, opportunity for the people who are willing to do it um you know I think that that's what people have been worried about and when you think about like in the in the 2020 2021 market I don't know how you would you know uh, think about all the work that uh, buyers agents did they might they might submit on 20 houses and their and their um you know their client got none of them because of just the the crazy market that we had. So it's one of those things that I think it's interesting timing that it's like, oh, what does the buyer uh, agent do? And in my opinion, in this market and in the last three four years, the buyers agents have done a ton of things. Like I, I it's interesting to me that that's even in question.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, well, well, when you think about it, right, the con- going back to the lawsuit, the construct of it is, well, should a seller pay for somebody to negotiate against their best interest? A listing agent wants to get the highest price. A buyer agent wants to get the lowest price for their client, right? So the, I think the, the belief behind the lawsuit is that a list, uh, a seller should not pay the fee for somebody to negotiate against their best interest right? Not realizing that there is tons of value in the fact that multiple buyer agents bring in multiple buyers, which brings in price competition, which creates bidding wars, right? Which creates last and final, which creates all uh, abstainably could sell your house for a lot more than 3% over, right? Asking price. So, you know, it comes down to value. But if I was a buyer agent, I do have concerns because what's difficult is you have to make an upfront investment into your buyers. Think about what you just said. Some buyer agents are submitting 10, 15 offers on houses. They don't get paid till the deal closes. So there's got to be some level of protection for them, and they're going to have to hedge their bet with their customers because as a buyer agent, I'm investing in gas energy, time, resources to go and show properties, find the right house, work with that client with no guarantee of compensation at the end. And now if you wind up in a circumstance where some listings have buyer agent commission, some listings don't have buyer agent commission, it adds a whole nother layer of complexity because how are buyer agents going to protect themselves? Are they going to be signing contracts and agency agreements with buyers that say, hey, listen, if we find a listing that has buyer agent commission, I'll take the 2% from the seller. If we find a listing that doesn't have buyer agent commission, then you got to pay me the 2% out of pocket. If that's the type of agency agreement that's going to be getting signed, well, how does it affect buyers? Because they look at house A and they're saying, okay, well, house A is $300,000 and I don't have to pay an upfront fee. But house B is is $300,000, and I do have to pay an out-of-pocket fee or finance that fee, right? So it's going to be interesting to see how that shakes out and how the buyer agents will adapt and adjust, and it will have counterparty effect, right? It's going to affect MSAs when you think about that. If buyer agents don't have as much control and then brokers don't have as much control of the buyer clients, well, how does that affect the broker relationships with mortgage companies? How does that affect the MSA agreements and the marketing service arrangements and and the, the construct that we've built in these referral arrangements? Right. That of course are all RESPA compliant. I think the industry does a great job at the RESPA compliance and covering their basis. But, you know, how will the industry pivot is the big question. And how will brokers and buyer agents pivot to try to keep, you know, business as usual intact?
0: I mean, we. I do think that, you know, by and large, there are good actors all over uh, real estate and, and mortgage, but you do have some bad actors. We hear all the time about potential RESPA violations and in this particular environment. And now, you know, with this further thing, I think that it's ripe for some potential problems there with RESPA because it, it's hard to see how you would even avoid that if you're trying to.
1: Yeah. Well, I think, uh, you you know, CHLA, right? Community Homeowners of America. Scott Olson, crew over there, uh, Taylor Stork president. They're really in front of this. And it's interesting. We haven't seen a lot of the associations actually develop an opinion on this stuff. Uh, and ostensibly, some of the larger organizations, you know, Nars is staying away from it. Um, you know, I think MBA does a phenomenal job. Uh, the Pete Mills team, the, their whole group over there does an awesome job of lobbying. But that's a big organization; they're kind of seeing where things shake out before they can develop an opinion. Whereas CHLA, you go look at what Olson and Stork did; they got ahead of this thing like eight months ago, and they have two bases of guardrails. Isn't this interesting? IMB is asking for more regulation. They looked at this lawsuit when it got certified back in April and they worked with the members and they came up because they I think the membership couldn't decide is it a good thing, is it a bad thing, right? Same thing with that FHA proxy. And they said, well, let's actually, instead of saying, is this good or is this bad? Let's go look at consumer protections. And that's something that CHLA is really big on. I think they're a big consumer advocacy group uh, for consumer protections. And they looked at, OK, we know the majority of real estate agents and loan officers are ethical. We know that the majority of them do the right thing. They do their education. They know the rules and regs. And But there is the case of some bad apples, like you said, and bad actors. What happens when they get a hold of it? And there's a couple of of regulatory items that CHLA worked on that are really interesting Two come to mind. So one is there should be a provision or a guardrail that would stop a listing agent from representing the buyer's mortgage. And this is in CHLA's um, uh, consumer bill of rights. That right now we can't find a regulatory hook on a federal level from CFPB, from FHA, from FHFA that would stop a listing agent that's duly licensed, okay, and dual comp to go and represent all sides of the transaction. So think about that. They represent the listing the, the seller the buyer and the buyer's mortgage. We don't want that scenario to go play out. Why? Because then the listing agent whose goal is to sell the property for the highest value would then what? Be previewed to the buyer's income and their assets. They'd be previewed to max affordability and max spending, which would be a bad thing, right? Because a bad, bad actor could use that in their own advantage to push people into higher price points. So one of the guardrails that Scott and Taylor proposed which was interesting is they proposed not an act of regulation but through guidelines and through insurance. They lobbied FHA to say hey, if there's a listing agent that's represent that's also the loan officer for the buyer, don't insure the loan. That was the strategy with FHA, and then with FHFA they said, "Okay, put a guideline in place that Fannie or Freddie won't set, won't actually buy the loan if the listing agent is the buyer's mortgage representative because that could be too much overreach uh, and too much conflict inside the transaction." So that was one angle that they took, and then the second angle, which is even more interesting, is back to that agent acting as a loan officer scenario, even as a buyer agent is they feel that any agent that's going to practice dual compensation should not be able to leverage the NMLS registrant process. Meaning that if you're a loan officer for a bank, you don't have to pass the SAFE Act test. You don't have to pass that federal test. Well, they're saying that there's got to be a point of entry barrier, right? There's got to be some type of barrier entry that uh, buyer agents can't just go hang their hat at at a federal depository and get around taking the MLO test and be able to do dual representation, dual comp on a transaction. That any agent that's looking to practice dual comp should at a minimum, regardless of what uh, financial institution they work for have to pass the SAFE Act test. There's got to be some type of barrier of entry. So uh, I think that stuff's posted on their website. Uh, you can check it out. But that that was interesting to me that a group like CHLA kind of started putting up these recommended guardrails uh, preemptively for this uh, this case.
0: It will be interesting to see, especially if the CFPB bites on some of those with, depending on what this case does. So before this case, maybe it's like, oh, that doesn't rise to, you know, the level of what we need to be worried about. If this case goes that way, I can imagine that they would be very interested in especially, you know, uh, making it impossible for someone to do that three-way representation.
1: And Sarah, there's a comical aspect of this for RESPA too. Like when you think about it, okay, I'm the loan officer and realtor on the same deal. So after closing, can I get a, a RESPA violation for taking myself out to lunch?
0: <laughs> <laughs> or sending yourself a steak knife? I don't know. Right,
1: exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Oh my gosh. But you know, you look at like disclosure and, you know, on a serious note about RESPA, there are, you know, think about like realtors had this ethical thing for years where they say, "Oh, I hand out three business cards." Right? I hand out three business cards to my three preferred lenders. I don't care which one you pick, right? Um, You know, they might put one card out front a little bit. But what happens if an agent is a W-2 employee of a lender, is there a respite implementation on only referring one preferred mortgage company, right? I don't know. You know, this is the stuff that's going to have to be debated in the industry and see how it shakes out. But it all goes back to that consumer, Right? Will a consumer buy into using their real estate agent as a loan officer? I don't know. Um, you know, this is the stuff that we will have to see shake out. And I think that in the end, it's going to be up to the consumers to decide what's going to fly and not going to fly.
0: Boy, it is just gonna get more complicated. We already know that consumers really don't know anything about this process when they start if if you're a first time home buyer, you're coming into it. You really don't know what your agent does or what the loan officer does. It's brand new, even if you've bought a couple of houses, you might be like, "Oh, you know you might either say no this that's not a good idea," or you might be like, "Hey, this streamlines the process, one and done,
1: yeah." You know, I I agree with that. It's uh, so many people have asked me, you know, internally, externally, do I see the role of the loan officer getting diminished? Do I see the role of the buyer agent or listing agent get diminished in this? Is this all just, you know, going to make us go away? And I don't agree with that. I said, I've advocated for originators and I've advocated for real estate agents my entire career. And the way I look at the home buying process is it's a highly emotional process, and a highly technical process. And emotions and technicality represent or proxy for representing real estate agents and loan officers, right? The real estate agent deals with the emotional process of this this home and buying this house and repairs and the inspection processes and the legal and the negotiation side. They deal with the highly emotional side. And a lot of times the loan officers deal with the highly technical side, right? How to qualify, how to get the confines in the deal, the paperwork, the documentation, getting, meeting the deadlines, Right? So when I look at consumer direct real estate, the, that's the one thing where I, I have hope that the consumers just, they don't do this often, right? There is a lot of value in the real estate agents. There is a lot of value in the loan officers. And I'm hoping for business as usual. I don't want to see mass disruption in our space. You know, with the, somebody we were getting interviewed the other day and they asked me, they're like, does this keep you up at night? I said, absolutely not. You know why? Because loan officers and realtors, they adjust and adapt. Loan officers have proven their ability to adapt. I mean, we had Dodd-Frank happen 15 years ago. Look at how many changes that we've adapted to over the past 10 or 15 years. It's amazing. Our entire business has changed, and these LOs have proven that they can adapt. Agents have proven they can adapt. Everybody said when uh, the MLS came out and Zillow came out, oh, it's going to be the death of the real estate agent. Well, they're still here. They still have a lot of value. So I'm not going to say that these individuals that are some of the top-notch professionals and highest caliber, you know, uh, 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 businessmen and women in the country are not going to adapt. They absolutely will, but it's going to be up to the consumer to, to, to kind of dictate how these transactions are going to move, uh, are going to work moving forward.
0: And like you, it's, it's not that I don't think people could do it, but I, but I do think what a, um, Unfortunate time to be introducing any more variables into a market that is, you know, already really difficult to to stay in if you're an agent or a loan officer. So that's my only thing is like, the market doesn't really need this right now.
1: It, it doesn't, but we might see some shakeout, right? This happened. This happened in the wake of 2008. You know, we saw a shakeout in the industry where you know some stronger, career committed loan originators and agents stayed in. They they actually thrived in this market, and some of the part timers left. You may see some of that shakeout, right? Which is also another opportunity, right? It's another opportunity for the ones that want to make this their sole focus. It is their full-time job. It's not their part-time job, right? To actually thrive thrive more. And, and we'll see that. You know, I think that when we tie all of this in, our bigger concern should be what's going on with rates, right? Uh, I, I have bigger concerns about low to moderate income borrowers, about the underserved, about now rates breaching 8%. Can they even afford housing? That's, that's my bigger concern with running absolute home mortgages, you know, we tie that into CRA. I said earlier, we can tie this into CRA, right? We do some great CRA outreach and marketing to underserved, some great education plans. Uh, we have a big, big CRA outreach plan happening rollout for 2024. And now as applications roll in, my bigger concern is, okay, we, we did a great job educating on home ownership. How can these consumers actually afford these houses? Affordability. People that we pre two months ago at, you know, 6.75 or now at 8%, they can't afford the house, right? I think that's got to be a big focus, a focus of our policymakers in Washington is how do we figure out a way to, you know, get, get some of these rates down a little bit and make housing more affordable and obtainable? Because The one thing is Gen Z, right? First time buyers. Now that the, you know, you don't, you're starting to not hear millennial and first time buyer anymore, right? We've gotten a lot older. You're starting to hear Gen Z and first time buyer. And they look at this housing right now as almost unattainable.
0: Yep. So, you
1: know, that's where our focus has to be is how to keep consumer costs down, figuring out uh, uh, affordable housing and figuring out how our originators and agents can help and, and get more people into houses.
0: Matt, you're exactly right. Thanks so much for being on it. We're out of time. And I feel like we have so much more to talk about, which just means I need to have you on again soon. And we can That's it. delve into more. We got to
1: do a whole technical one one day that we can go through all the the, the tech aspects of the tools that are coming out for to help uh, in these transitions.
0: I love that. Thanks so much for being on and um, kind of guiding us through like what some of the effects might be. Really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, no problem. Thanks, Sarah.